0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our Ask Expert session, uh, a podcast series that we're creating to enable open access from the general community to top research experts um, and health experts so that everybody can have their questions answered. Uh, We did our first podcast between Rare Genomics Institute and Syndrome Without a Name that happened a while back, and we are starting a new series uh, between the Rare Genomics Institute and Ben's Friend. Uh, My name is Jimmy Lin, I'm the president of Rare Genomics Institute, and co-hosting with me um, is uh, Ben from Ben's Friends and John from Ben's Friends. Would you um, like to introduce yourself and introduce a little bit about Ben's Friends? Yeah, sure. Hello, everybody. This
1: is Ben. Hello and welcome to the first installment um, of an ongoing podcast series sponsored and hosted jointly by Ben's Friends and Rare Genomics. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ben's Friends, our mission is to ensure that everybody in the world has a rare disease and a safe place to go and connect with others like them. Ben's Friends creates online support communities for folks with rare diseases and are now up to 33 rare diseases with over 23,000 members and over 500,000 page views a month. Um, we've already doubled our traffic once this year, and one of those rare diseases is ataxia. For more information, visit www.bensfriends.org. So now I'm going to turn to John, who will describe how the hour will go. Hi. Um, the first half hour is we're going to discuss the exciting technologies impacting rare diseases. And for today's focus will be whole exome and whole genome sequencing. And the second half hour will feature a particular disease, and in today's segment, we'll, we'll focus on the ataxia. At the end of each segment, we'll be answering your live questions, which you will post on our Facebook page. Since the podcast is an opportunity for the general community to engage the experts, we've provided two mechanisms for listeners to ask questions. One is the many of you have already submitted questions prior, and we will try to address many of those questions. And the other way is we will answer questions live, and this will be done on Facebook. Anytime during our conversation, go to RGI's Facebook page, which is www. Facebook.com backslash rare genomics and comment on the post with your questions. Let me turn it back to Jimmy, who will introduce the experts and start us off learning about the newest technologies for rare disease research.
0: Thanks, John. Um, So a quick disclaimer before we start, Um, we are sharing... A lot of really sort of state-of-the-art and new information, um, and this is just for educational purposes, so, and this is not to replace talking to your doctor. So if you have any specific questions, make sure you do talk to your doctor, and this hopefully will be a helpful resource just for educational purposes. And just also for a quick introduction about Rare Genomics Institute, we're a volunteer organization that has been started to to help patients with rare diseases access top researchers and fund their research um, using crowdfunding. Right now, our methods are using genome sequencing as we're helping patients to do that. And we had our first few discoveries in the last month. And we're hoping to use other technologies and fund other technologies to help understand what these sequences mean. So... This is an exciting development, and so we're excited also to partner with top experts and to bring this to the general public. So today, the first half, um, like John mentioned, we are going to talk about one of the most exciting technologies that has been developing um, in, in in the life sciences space, and for us, we have um, two experts, um, um, doctor Golson Goulson-Leon and Dr. Misha Angrist. So... Goldson, Dr. Golsan-Leon is, is an assistant professor in human genetics at um, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory and also a researcher at the Utah Foundation for Biomedical Research. He's a board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. His focus is on the genetic basis of rare Mendelian diseases and the development of clinical-grade exome and whole genome sequencing. He hails from Utah. He loves it there. I mean, we're welcome for him to... Be on the show. Welcome.
2: Great, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Our second guest for us today is Dr. Misha Angrist. Dr. Angrist is an assistant professor at Duke University at the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. And he teaches um, genetics, and as well as the ethical and legal and social implications with genetics. He did his doctoral work at, at Case Western, and very interestingly, also has an MFA in writing and literature. And he has training before as, as a genetic counselor. And another interesting tidbit: he, he was the fourth participant in the the PGP, the Personal Genome Project. So he had his entire genome sequence twice, and it's now public. So you can actually access Dr. Angus' uh, genome online. He, he wrote about this in his book called um, Here is a Human Being at the Dawn of Personal Genomics. Um, Currently, he's a great advocate in, in patient advocacy space um, and really helping patients and sort of undergoing research studies, being able to figure out, to learn more about the results that comes from it. And currently, he is a co-principal investigator um, at Duke's Task Force for Neonatal Genomics. So, welcome, Misha.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So, it's been... A really really cool time in biology, and maybe we can start off with asking show, why is such an excitement on sequencing? What's the big deal? Why are you know people always talking about it these days?
3: Well, the short answer is money. That it's gotten to be so much less expensive now to look at either a whole genome or A whole exome which is the part of the genome that codes for protein uh, about two percent of the total human DNA so what that means is that uh, patients um, who used to be destined to go on what we call a long diagnostic odyssey having test after test There was a strong suspicion, for example, this is particularly true for people with rare conditions, and there would be a strong suspicion that what they had was genetic, but no one knew exactly where to look. And in fact, that's still the case. But what's happened as the cost has come down into the few thousand dollar range is that for what it used to cost to look at a single gene or a few genes we can now look at all 20,000 genes that code for protein or for a little more money we can look at all of the DNA in a person's genome. So that's very exciting because it takes away a lot of the guesswork. Um, we We can Look at the overwhelming majority of what of all of the genetic material in a person's cells.
0: Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. And considering only sort of ten years ago, we did that for the first time. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so Golson, so you've been able to actually use this technology to identify um, genes in rare diseases. Can you tell us about what you found and your experience with that?
2: Uh, Yes, I mean, the technology has been a long time in coming. It was first developed by many people, some of whom were at Cold Spring Harbor, but uh, many, many others uh, involved in sort of Exxon, they call it Exxon capture and sequencing. Um, But about three years ago, after all of that had been uh, published, I started working out in Utah, um, and uh, that's because the families are quite large there, and it's really been historically a great place for genetics research, and so we we started looking for families to sequence, and, and we did find one uh, family with uh, several boys that had died from a new disease. Um, and in that case, it was basically five boys over two generations uh, with uh, several different mothers, and we were able to use this new technology of exon capture and, and high-throughput sequencing to... Um, quickly uh, sequence the the various uh, exons and then uh, we used various uh, software programs to filter uh, and prioritize the variants and we were able to come up with uh, one variant that at least in the context of the genetic background of that family and and their environmental background it appears that that uh, mutation seems to be very uh, likely to be involved in causing that new uh, disease.
0: Yeah, that's very exciting. And was was it the first time anybody sort of found such a variant for this disease?
2: Yes, it was. Uh, you know, I think ever going back to, to um, even the time of Darwin, you know, there, there's been people who've uh, always suspected that, you know, that humans are all unique. And, you know, I, I personally believe that every person on the planet is a unique uh, genetic uh, individual and, and that's because there are six billion nucleotides in every cell of the body and it's estimated that there are you know 50 to 100 trillion cells in every human uh, body and so uh, with only being six billion people on the planet it, it seems as though um, everyone is likely going to be unique uh, but uh, in the context of families where much of the genetic background is is similar. You can get these um, mutations that uh, can that are unique to the family and can lead to disease, you know, unique diseases in that in that particular family.
0: Wow, and that's definitely really cool. So, Dr. Angrist, you are um, so you're doing similar uh, kind of research that Dr. Leon is is doing um, at Duke. Um, you, you know, you're CoPI for Duke's task force for neonatal genomics. Um, it seems, you know, it seems like this is almost sort of too good p- to be true. Can we can we be solving all genetic diseases, you know, in this uh, way? And- no,
3: it is too good to be true. <laughs> Don't tell the NIH I said that. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a massive step forward, but of course, with each new technology. Um, and each new advance come new challenges. So obviously if we're now looking at 20,000 genes or three billion or six billion base pairs instead of one gene or a few thousand base pairs, then we have many, many, many times more data than we used to have. And so that becomes a challenge to store and to transport and mostly to interpret so we still don't have very many complete human genome sequences so there's still a fair amount of variation this kind of every one of us is a like a snowflake that golson alluded to every time we sequence a genome we still see things we've never seen before we we see spelling differences in the DNA alphabet that we've never seen before. And if we've never seen it before, then we have no um, really good idea, typically, of what it means. Um, So uh, that's a major challenge, particularly if we're trying to help patients and trying to make diagnoses and trying to um, as we say, correlate phenotype with genotype, in other words, trying to understand what genetic variants lead to, to which uh, groups of symptoms. Uh, so that's a major challenge.
0: Yeah, so with these challenges, I think many of our listeners are interested because, you know, they, they potentially have an illness and thinking that um, they would like to get sequenced and to figure out what's going on. So who do you think of sort of patients should everybody get sequenced? Who should be the ones being sequenced? And what should patients consider, you know, having access to this technology?
3: Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, and I don't know that uh, I'm in a position to say hard and fast that uh, patient X should be sequenced and patient Y should not. Um, I think we're still sort of groping and and figuring our way, figuring out um, what, which patients uh, it makes the most sense to sequence, we've developed some criteria, um, and some of those are purely logistical. So, for example, if we have a young patient with um, uh, a group of symptoms or what looks like a syndrome that suggests a genetic cause, we're more likely to go forward if we also have access to the DNA from both parents, uh, from both biological parents, because if that's true, then um, we're in a position to determine how any changes in the patient's DNA we might be interested in, uh, how they were inherited, um, whether they were inherited from one or both parents, or whether they're uh, a so-called new mutation that that um, happened in the uh, embryo and was not inherited from the parents.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's still it's still a difficult thing to really be able to say which one who are good candidates and who are not. It seems like
3: yes. Generally, patients with very severe um, conditions. Obviously, things. Uh, if if we have a patient who um, has symptoms that suggest an infectious disease, uh, we're probably not inclined to sequence their genome. Um, if we have a patient with, say, very minor learning disabilities, we're less likely to sequence their genome. Um, so we're, we're looking for things that are severe, that um, are likely to be associated with uh, profound changes in DNA that, that would jump out at us. And in a perfect world, we would like to um, sequence people for whom we might actually be able to, to uh, use that information to better manage their care.
0: That's great. So, so Dr. Lyon, um, when you selected those early families, when you did sequencing, how did you decide to sort of select them, and why did you decide to work on those diseases?
2: Uh, it, it has to do with trying to um, be able to prove um, causality uh, in terms of whether or not any particular mutation that you identify, if it's about trying to prove that it is really is it necessary and sufficient to cause the illness. And so, um, in in this particular instance, I was um, you know I met many you know dozens of families and was searching for a family with at least two affected children. Um, And in the end, as I said before, I ended up choosing a family that at the time they had four affected boys, um, where the grandmother had had two of these boys, and then each of her daughters had had a boy. And so it was a very um, obvious um, genetic disease that seemed to be uh, passing down from the mothers. Uh, And so it became a lot easier to prove Causality. Um, currently, there are many people that are doing exome and whole genome sequencing, and they may, you know, choose a severely ill child. Um, and even with the DNA from the mother and father, uh, you still end up getting, you know, potentially dozens um, or more uh, variants uh, in the affected child, and you're kind of left not knowing for sure. If that variant is both necessary and sufficient to cause the disease, um, and one way to get around that is to find um, other people um, in the population that have the same disease and the same mutation, uh, and that is at least one other uh, piece of evidence that is in favor of that variant potentially being involved in, in uh, causing the you know, that new or different genetic disease. Great,
0: great. I, at this time, I just want to actually remind um, the listeners that um, if you have questions you want to post live, you can post anytime. Um, our Facebook page is wwwfacebookcom black-sash-raregenomics, That's R-A-R-E-G-E-N-O-M-I-C-S, um, and there's uh, a post there that if you wanted to put in questions, that we'll be able to answer live um, in five minutes. So great. Um, so one interesting thing, actually, both um, on that, you, you've been writing about your experience of actually finding what's sort of causative, uh, or potentially causative for a family, and, and able to communicate that, and, and really trying to sort of rectify that situation. Can you t- tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, I'm I'm a, a doctor. I'm a psychiatrist, and uh, was uh, trained in New York. Um, uh, for a number of years and, you know, there are laws in place. Uh, there's something called CLIA, which is the um, Clinical Laboratory uh, Improvement Amendment Act, which is basically um, something that was, uh, it's a law that was implemented that says that any, um, you know, that basically that any kind of testing that involves giving uh, results back to patients, that it must be done in a CLIA-certified uh, laboratory. And, and, and this law went into effect basically uh, because there was a period in the 80s when um, many people were doing testing of women and doing pap smears that were uh, not, uh, they weren't doing them properly, and they were giving back all sorts of uh, incorrect results. And so uh, this regulation went into effect to sort of basically uh, introduce a uh, standardization and you know a level a uh, quality a level of quality, uh, and so you know if you're in a research lab and you're simply you know sequencing somebody on your you know on your lap on your bench, uh, that's not good enough. Uh, there's all sorts of quality regulations in place to say that you know, any kind of genetic testing and other kinds of testing have to be done in a CLIA environment. Um, so. I've been uh, sort of going around discussing the fact that uh, it would be a good thing if we could get to a point where um, at least the initial uh, you know, germline exomes and genomes for people, um, that they should be uh, performed in this sort of CLIA environment. Uh, and uh, this has been met with um, uh, some uh, some people that are enthusiastic about it uh, and others that are uh, highly skeptical uh, and that has to do um, mainly between this this divide between researchers and and clinicians. Um, Obviously researchers would like to just get on with sequencing thousands of humans and being able to do all sorts of uh, research um, but uh, clinicians on the other hand would like to be able to give these results back to these people and if you don't do it in a CLIA environment, you're sort of left um, not being able to give the exomes or the genomes, um, all of it back to people. You're, you're, instead, you're, you're left having to sort of go back and validate um, the mutation, a single mutation in a CLIA-certified laboratory and then giving back that single uh, mutation to um, the person, but you're not able to give back all of the exome or whole genome data.
0: Got it. So there, there are sort of now hopefully, you know, forces is, is hopefully creating mechanisms to return back the information, it seems like, or?
2: Well, that's correct. I mean, I think that we're, uh, you know, I, I sort of look forward to a society in which every person uh, gets their, you know, the majority of their whole genome sequenced and, and it's on some sort of secure, you know, place uh, on some sort of network where, each person can go back and you know look at their own genome and reanalyze it uh, and and update uh with new information. But but in order for any of that really to occur it has you know the, the, the sequencing has to be done at least in a in a CLIA environment or some sort of you know, minimal sort of quality standards. Uh, otherwise um it's just not going to work for us to just be giving back um you know haphazardly a bunch of exomes and genomes that were, you know, just research, you know, that that were sequenced in just some research setting where, you know, there were absolutely no, you know, uh, you know, regimented standards in place.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: that's that's great. Um, I think sort of um, hopefully that the forces will be, you know, as we be able to sort of communicate in the future. Um, so, so, Dr. Angres, sort of going forth, um, how, what does the future look like, you think, um, that as as this technology continues to drop in price and more people have more and more access to it, sort of what what do you see, especially, you know, for, for patients who are, who are listening who are, have questions about how is this going to impact you know, in fact my, my health care is it, you know, or potentially I have a disease that's unknown, like how what does the future hold for patients?
3: Well, that's sort of the $64,000 question. Um, I, I hope the future looks uh, the way that Golson described it, um, where people have unfettered access to this information if they want it. Um, I think we're still a ways away from that, unfortunately, um, given the pushback I get when I try to make this case to uh, physicians and even my colleagues on the Institutional Review Board at Duke that reviews research, Um, there is still great reticence uh, and there is still a lot of fear that um, the public is not ready for their own genomic information and uh, won't understand it and it's meaningless anyway, so why should we bother? Um, I think uh, events and technology will ultimately win the day and that those um, objections will simply not be tenable. uh it's simply too difficult to keep this information under lock and key because it's too uh cheap and easy to to get it and it's getting more so all the time i'm not sure if i answered your question
0: no i think no i think you definitely have well thank you um sort of uh A little plug here for for rare genomics, too. Both um, Dr. Ankers and Dr. Lyon actually are are partners with us as as we try to help patients with rare diseases um, that don't have a diagnosis, that don't have research studies, uh, to be able to create these sequencing projects. Um, And I think, like it was mentioned, um, we don't take all comers, but if if patients are good candidates for sequencing, um, we we have investigators who are willing to partner with families um, to hopefully Hopefully, you know, be able to find what's causative or to push forth research um, just a little bit. And that's sort of our hope here at Rare Genomics. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Angus and Dr. Lyon, for your expertise.
3: Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank thank you.
0: you. In our next half hour, we will be discussing specifically uh, about one disease, which is ataxia.